Before we start, I want to just pray once again because no one is ever more conscious than I am that when I stand in front of God's people and open God's Word, I am totally helpless to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Only by the Spirit of God will the Word of God come alive before your eyes and in your souls tonight. And we are going to be talking this weekend about the transformed life. The transformed life ought to be the normal Christian life. The transformed life is not a once-in-a-lifetime achievement. The transformed life is a process that goes on from the moment that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ until the day that we step into eternity into His presence. So as we prepare ourselves this evening, if you want, you can open your Bibles to our theme verse, which is Romans 12, 1 and 2. We may as well start there. And I'll offer up a prayer for God's grace and blessing tonight. Now, Heavenly Father, as Your people have gathered together, <clears throat> we come as Your children, hungry to be fed in our souls from the bread of life. Father, we gather around the banquet table of Your grace, and our prayer is that God the Holy Spirit will break for us the bread of life, that You will nourish our souls, that You will strengthen us in our faith, that You will purify us in our lives, that You will make us through tonight and the time that we spend together this weekend just a little bit more like Your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, place Your mighty angelic sentries around this church. Keep any disturbance, distraction, or disruption of the enemy far away. Help us to concentrate, to focus, to be serious, to be disciplined as we open Your Word and realize that we are standing on holy ground. Wash us and we will be clean. Cleanse us and we will be whiter than snow. Search us and know us and see if there be any evil way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Our theme verse, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is where we're going to begin because, you know, in a weekend like this, and every pastor knows that when you stand in front of a group, you may have people anywhere from someone who just trusted Christ as their Savior all the way to people who are in spiritual maturity, possibly involved in ministry or missions, and therefore you kind of have to use a shotgun approach uh, and trust that God the Holy Spirit will just lead from your mouth the things that are needed. Uh, and so it's important not to go overboard. I don't want to overwhelm you. Uh, I want to give you something useful. I would far rather you walk out of here with one thing that you can't forget. One thing that will change your life than all the information that I could give you in all the time that we're going to spend together. But in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we have Paul's plea to the Roman people. It's both a request, an urgent request, and a command I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're here for tonight and over the weekend is the renewing of our mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transformation, as I said earlier, is not something that happens in a moment of time. It's something that happens over a process. And because of that, it involves daily disciplines. So I wanted to hit this up front because I'll be going through some of these as we go along. If you want, you can turn in your notes to page number 13. You'll see these at the bottom of the page. I try to save you from having to write too much. I do hope that you'll have a pen handy. There will be things I'll be touching on you may want to jot down or passages or illustrations that you may want to take note of. When Paul talks about being transformed, he uses the same word that is used in Matthew 17 and verse 2 as Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and it says that he was transfigured before them. It's the same word. What it's saying is that the inner reality of who he was became visible, became manifest. And that's what we want in our life. But it takes, as I said, daily disciplines, and those daily disciplines you'll see there at the bottom of page 13 and the top of page 14, and it's very simple. I actually came up with this while we were in a village in Africa, and as I watched the people go about the activities of their day, you always try to somehow relate Scripture and biblical information to the world that they live in. They live in a different world than we do. I remember taking a guy from Australia with me to a very remote place one time, and he started talking to people about their car and being concerned about their car. Well, nobody there owned a car. Nobody there could even dream of having a car. So the point was the illustration was not something that related to them. But as I watched these people in this African village going about their daily activities, I noticed there were five things they did every single day. And there are five things that you and I do every day. We do these five things for our body. We care for our body. And yet, unfortunately, too often we neglect our soul. And the first of these is washing. Now, if you haven't washed today, please don't tell me. And maybe keep your distance. Every day we wash. And we wash because we get dirty in life. And we need to realize the importance of the cleansing of the soul. And of course, we'll touch on 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I'll just throw this out as a challenge to you to kind of start the gears thinking, how often do you sin? How often, how often are you conscious that you have sinned? Not just some big overt activity, the little thoughts that flick through your mind just for a moment of time, the words that may come out of your mouth in a moment of anger or whatever, and we think of how many times we sin, and then we should ask ourselves the question, how often have I washed? How often do I actually stop and go before the Lord and confess those sins and receive cleansing? And then after they would go to the river or to the well in the morning and they would wash, they would eat. We need to nourish the soul as much as we need to nourish the body. And of course, Jesus told us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
if I were to ask you, how many times did you eat today? And then ask you, how many times were you in Scripture today? It makes my point. We don't forget to feed the body, but how easily we forget to feed the soul. It's not always a matter of reading a chapter, reading half a book. Sometimes that's what puts people off when it comes to the reading of the Word. But how about the reading of a verse? How about the placing of Scripture in different places in your home, on, in your car, uh, through whatever your activities of the day, so that again and again and again through the day, you take a moment to pause and look at that Scripture and reflect on what does that Scripture mean to me right now where I am in my life. After they would wash and eat, they would walk. The reason they walk is, of course, no one has cars, no one in remote places at least, has even a bicycle. And to get from where they are to their field, since most of them are subsistence farmers, they have to walk to their field, sometimes a great distance. Generally, when they walk, they'll walk with other people going to work in the field or in nearby areas. And as they walk, of course, they're carrying on a conversation. And so walking brings to our mind that idea of walking with the Lord. And we have that idea that John mentions in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, keeps on cleansing us from sin. You know, there are three cleansings, just to mention in passing, that every Christian should participate in. The first is a once-for-all cleansing. That is the cleansing the moment you trust Christ as your Savior and your sins are washed away once and for all. That is a once-for-all cleansing. But then there's that cleansing that comes when we recognize that we have stepped out of line, we have thought what we shouldn't think, said what we shouldn't say, done what we shouldn't have done, and we go to the Lord to confess that sin, to receive that cleansing. That's a moment-by-moment cleansing. And then there's the cleansing that takes place that John's speaking of here in 1 John 1, 7, and that is the cleansing not that cleanses you after you sin, it's the cleansing that keeps you from sin. You know, it's like when I was a little boy and my mother would dress me up in my little sailor suit. Me and my two older brothers had these three little sailor suits that she would dress us up in to go to church every Sunday morning and she'd get us all dressed and then while her and her dad, my dad were getting ready to go, we would go outside to play. And of course, the last thing they said to us before we went outside was, don't get dirty. Well, of course, what was the first thing that we did? We would find a mud hole or a dirt pile or whatever, and, you know, we're having a great old time. And the result was usually a little bit of discipline, and God's pretty good at that too, and then being brought back in, dusted off, washed up, and cleansed. That's like 1 John 1.9. But the application of the discipline, and my dad was pretty good at that. He had a very, as he used to say, striking way of making his point. The next time we went out, we would see that mud hole, that dirt pile, and we would start heading toward it. And then that thought would come into my mind, the last time I did that, it didn't feel too good. So instead of getting dirty and then getting washed afterwards, I'm going to stay away from it and I'm going to be cleansed from getting into it. That's what 1 John 1.7 is talking about. The blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us by preventing us from even getting involved in that sin. And so we're walking in the light. We're walking in obedience to the Word of God. 
As they would get to their place of work, these village people, they would begin going to work. And God has a work for each and every one of us. If you're here this evening and you're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, I want to emphasize to you God has a plan for your life. And His plan is much better than any plan you're going to come up with. Life becomes much, much easier the quicker we realize that God has a plan and instead of me trying to figure life out, the best thing I can do is humble myself and submit myself to His guidance and direction and He will lead me into His plan. And so there's a work for us to accomplish and Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are His workmanship. The word that's used there is poema. We get poem from it and it's a word that actually refers to a masterpiece. You may not have thought of this. Maybe when you get home tonight, you might want to go look in a mirror and realize you are a masterpiece of God. There's no one else in the world like you. God created you uniquely. God brought you into the world at precisely the time He wanted you to be in the world. He has a plan for your life. He has a work for you to accomplish. And we need to be available to that work each and every day. And then finally, we have... The rest, they're on the top of page 14. And every evening as they come in from the field, they would lay down and rest. Now, I'm not going to do this to you. This is what I do in villages. I have them go through the, the uh, actions with me of each of these. And so I say, first, we're going to wash and they have to imitate me. And then we're going to eat. And then we're going to walk. And then we're going to work. And then we're going to rest. And you know what? It sticks in their minds so well that I've gone back to villages after four or five years of not being there. And when the people see me, they can't talk to me, but they do this. And you know what? That is valuable to me. You know why? Four or five years later, they remember what I just shared with you. I would rather give you those five things and leave them with you than anything I'm going to say from this point on. If they stick with you, and if you do them. You know, Jesus said, if you do these things, you are blessed. Happy are you if you know them, but if you do them, you are blessed. And it's always in the doing that the blessing really comes. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 is going to be our challenge over the weekend. And how can you really develop Romans 12, 1 and 2 without developing Romans? Romans is the greatest book on the transformation of life. And the reason is because it was written by a man who was a living example of a transformed life. And I'm going to share that with you in just a few minutes. Before we go on, I want to tell you about my love affair with the book of Romans. When I was a young Bible college student in 1970, I had a professor by the name of Paul Iman, and <clears throat> I went into his class, and he was going to teach us the book of Romans. Handed out the syllabus, and it had the requirements for the course, and one of the main requirements for the course was that you had to outline the book of Romans. Well, at the time, I didn't like outlining. I didn't recognize the value of it, which I do now. And as he was telling us the importance of outlining the book of Romans, he told us that Martin Luther jokingly said that every Christian should memorize the book of Romans by heart. And so he said, 
kind of facetiously, if any of you want to memorize the book, you won't have to outline it. So I rushed up after class and I said, did you mean what you said about memorizing it? Because I would much rather memorize than outline. I said, I'll memorize the book. And he said, well, I said it. I guess I have to take you up on it. So in 16 weeks of classes, I memorized the 16 chapters of the book of Romans. You want me to recite them to you? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I'm not going to go through all that. But we are going to touch on a lot of things in the book of Romans. Now, let me say up front, there are probably some things that I'm going to say or things that will be in the notes that may challenge you, uh, it may ruffle some feathers, and I just want you to understand up front, that's okay. You take whatever is in this that God makes meat to your soul and you eat it. And whatever is bones, throw it out. Okay? Because I realized a long time ago our unity is not based on agreeing on every single passage. You know, they say if you get three Jewish rabbis together and ask them about a passage, you'll have at least five different interpretations. And sometimes Christians can be even worse than that. So I am not threatened, neither am I concerned if we disagree on something. My point is always this. Our unity is based on our union in Christ. And Paul makes that very, very clear in Ephesians chapter 4. So take the notes and use the notes as you will. We're going to basically study around three therefore statements. They're really the hinges of the book. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, and Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so if you will, open your Bibles back. We're going to back up to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> These three therefore statements are not only very, very important, but each of them has what we might call a surprise. <clears throat> we'll wait until we get to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, to introduce the surprise. But Romans 5, 1 and Romans 8, 1 are two of the most hotly contested passages in the book of Romans. And the reason is very simple. If you would believe it or not, and there are people that practically come to blows over things like this, which is why I'm telling you that uh, I don't agree with that kind of a, an attitude. In Romans chapter 5, if you look at it, as I read it to you, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody have a different translation? Well, the interesting thing is that in the Greek manuscripts of Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, they are about equally divided between the statement, we have peace with God, or the statement, let us have peace with God. If you go back to your appendices, in Appendix A, you don't need to do it right now, you'll have plenty of time, I've given you 20 great authors on Romans, and they all disagree on Romans 5 and verse 1. These are brilliant men, highly educated, well-trained in the languages, scholars of Scripture, much better brains than I have, and they 
as I say, sometimes almost will come to blows over the difference. What is the difference between the statement, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, and the statement, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. One, of course, is referring to an actual possession that we now have, peace with God. The other is looking at something potential that we can have, peace with God. Do you know what the difference is in the Greek language? One letter. An omicron or an omega. That's it. And yet over one letter with almost equal support among the manuscript traditions that we have, people are willing to come to blows. You know what? I like what Randolph Yeager said, a tremendous Greek scholar. He said, it doesn't really matter which one you take. Again, the manuscript evidence is about equal because he said, whichever one you take, the other one is taught someplace else in the Bible. Is that not right? Are we not taught that once we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we no longer have any enmity against God. We have been reconciled to God through the death of His Son and we have peace with God. Is, that's true, is it not? Is it not also true that as a child of God, I should seek to live in peace with God? How many times does Paul say, if you do this, the peace of God will be with you? Or, in other texts, the God of peace will be with you. Well, that's the kind of life that we want to have. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through all of the arguments back and forth. Uh, we have the same kind of thing when we come to Romans 8.1. If you want to just turn to that one, it's another therefore statement. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Anybody have a different translation, different version? Anybody have a little added phrase there at the end? I'm reading from the New King James. My version says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, this is another battlefield. And guess what? You can find evidence for either one. Uh, I'll tell you the ones I'm inclined to as we get to them, but I want to come back to Romans 5.1 because this is a good place for us to start. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question tonight. Are you justified before God? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you stand justified in His presence? What do we mean by justified? We mean that we have been declared righteous by the only God of the universe, by the holy and righteous judge. We have been declared righteous not on the basis of works which we have done, but according to His mercy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To be justified, as we'll see, means to have the righteousness of Christ placed on us because He took our sins and bore them in His own body on the tree. 
having been justified reminds you and I of a very important point, and this may seem not all that important since I assume that most of us who are here tonight are believers in Jesus Christ, but transformation begins with the gospel. Transformation begins at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. And when Paul says, therefore, having been justified, guess what he's doing? You all know what they say in Bible schools. Whenever you see the word therefore, what do you do? Well, you look and see what it's there for, right? Therefore is an inferential particle that is saying now, based on everything I just said to you, we have peace with God. So where does the therefore of Romans 5.1 take us? It takes us back to chapter 1. Turn with me, if you will. I'm going to try not to wear you out, but I do want you to get the main thrust of what Paul is saying in this book. You know, when we talk about the life that is transformed by the grace of God, we look around and we don't see a lot of it sometimes. Certainly we're not going to see it in the world but we should see it in each other. And we should see it in ourselves. And I would suggest that if we look in the mirror of God's Word, we cannot see changes that God is making, things that we could never do, but changes that He is making in our life, in our thinking, in our motivation, in our attitude. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We ought to be able to see that transformation is taking place. G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. I would suggest a different approach. I don't think the Christian ideal has been found difficult and left untried. I think the Christian ideal has not been taught. I think this is where the error lies. Our churches are weak because the Word too often is not taught. People need to understand the fundamentals of the Word of God if they're going to build on that a superstructure of some kind of spiritual life. And so as we come to Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lays down for us a foundation that I could spend this whole weekend on. And I'm not going to try to hit every beautiful passage in Romans, but I do want to hit some special ones. When Paul says, having been justified by faith, let's think about what that means. Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul had found the plan of God for his life. By the way, it began on the Damascus Road, didn't it? Separated under the gospel of God, listen closely, which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is not bringing something new. Paul is defending something that has been around for a long time. The prophets spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ, They spoke of the time of His birth in Daniel chapter 9. They talked about the place where we would be born in Micah chapter 2. 
They talked about the fact that he would go down into Egypt and be brought back up in Hosea chapter 11. Over and over and over again, the prophets laid down the promise, the expectation, and the anticipation that the Messiah was coming into the world. And so Paul wants us to understand that his gospel is consistent with the words of the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice verse 3, "...concerning His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead." What these two verses tell me is this, the Gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. It's not about us. It's not about the world that we live in. It's not about the latest news event that's taking place. It's all about our Lord. And it's about the fact that He is both man and God. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. But by His resurrection, He was declared to be the Son of God. And Paul tells us that His apostleship was for obedience to the faith among all nations there in verse 5, which tells us two things. How do you obey the gospel? How do you obey the gospel? You believe it. Obedience to the faith, the word the faith, is used for the content of what we believe. We believe in the faith. That's the truth that we believe. And what is the first step of obedience to that truth? To believe it. Obedience to the faith. By the way, Paul bookends the whole book of Romans. If you go back to chapter 16, I believe it's verse 25, he brings the phrase up again, obedience to the faith. This is a common technique of the Scripture writers in the New Testament. Many of them will bookend uh, their book from the beginning to the end to kind of tie it all together. And you'll see it there at the end of chapter 16. Now I want you to notice as we drop down, Paul talks about his desire to come to the Christians in Rome, but I want you to skip over that and drop down to verse 16 where he picks up again, or let's start in verse 14. He picks up again with the idea of the fact that he has been called and dedicated to the gospel. He says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith." I want you to see uh, transform man. I want you to look with me on page 20 of your notes. I think sometimes the best thing for us to do in teaching a truth is to illustrate the truth. If you'll just quickly, quickly look with me on page 20, Appendix B. The life of Paul, an example of the transformed life. I'll quickly run through this because I'm sure most of you are familiar with the various events. We see Paul introduced in the book of Acts as a hateful and a murderous person. You'll remember in Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, it talks about after the death of Stephen, Paul was yet what? Breathing out threats and murder against the church. 
He was hostile. He was angry. He was vicious in his desire to destroy the church. And it's very interesting that in referring to this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, he refers to himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and I want you to notice the last one, an insolent man. An insolent man. What's an insolent man? Well, the word he uses there is hubristes. Hubristes is a word that means a sadist. It indicates one who in pride and insolence deliberately and contemptuously mistreats, wrongs, and hurts other people just for the sake of hurting them, just to deliberately humiliate them. In other words, Paul describes himself as a person who took pleasure in causing pain to other people. That's the kind of person that he was. What could God do with a guy like that? How many people you and I see, and Gary Horton, a tremendous mentor and influence on my life for so many years, is sitting here, and I don't know if you remember this, Gary, we were going to Harrison, Arkansas, and we were going to a school up there that you were going to speak to, and we were driving down the street, and I've used this many times, we're driving down the street, and this guy came along, and he was ragged and filthy and dirty and had long, scraggly hair and, you know, just looked like, as we would say, the dregs of society or, you know, the, the worthless among uh, society. And I said to Gary as we're driving by, hey, take a look at this guy. You remember what you said? <laughs> he still remembers. This was how long ago? 30 years ago. He said he looks like discipleship material to me. That's the difference in attitude. That's how God looks at people. And we need to learn, if we want to be transformed into the image of Christ, how about if we began by looking at people not as what they are, but what God could make out of them. Paul tells us we should do that. He said, since we have come to know Christ, we no longer look on any man according to the flesh. The tragedy, my friends, is you and I do. We look at people and we judge them because of their social status. We judge them because of what they have. We judge them because of their appearance or their uh, conduct or, you know, whatever it is that we use as a gauge to evaluate people instead of looking into the heart and the soul of that person and saying, what could God make with that person? God looked down on Saul of Tarsus a man who delighted in seeing people suffer, a man who delighted in seeing men, women, and children put to pain, put in prison, beaten, and even put to death. After his Damascus Road experience with Jesus Christ in Acts 9.17, he's identified as a brother. I'm giving you the steps of Paul's transformation from a sadistic man to a brother. And then we find him in Acts 9, 22 to 26, and he's gathering together and he's accepted as a disciple. Do you realize that there are differences in these levels that are being described here? It's one thing to be a brother, but I know a lot of brothers that are not very good disciples. Paul was accepted immediately as a disciple. But he didn't stop there. In the Antioch church, he is listed in Acts 13, verse 1, among five prophets and teachers. And guess what? 
And this is significant. He's listed last. Among the five that were there, he is the least. Word order is very important in inspired Scripture. And then you'll remember that the Lord spoke to the leadership of the Antioch church there and said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul whom I have called to serve me. And so they were sent out in Acts 13 and verse 2. And you'll notice that it was Barnabas and Saul. Who is in charge of the mission team? Barnabas. And then as they go out as missionaries, they come to the island of Paphos and there they run into a demon-possessed guy and you'll remember that here, Saul of Tarsus, the least of the prophets, the second guy on the mission team, rises to the top and takes command and takes charge for the sake of the gospel and the proconsul believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that after he took charge there in Acts 13, verses 6 through 12, the mission team moves on, and in Acts 13, 13, it says, Paul and his party then departed and went on their journey. Not only is there that name change, which is significant, Saul, the Hebrew Shaul, means strong and mighty. That's what he was in his own mind. Paul being his Greek, what we would call middle name, <coughs> means little and insignificant. You ready for this one? This will change your life tonight. You demote yourself in your own mind from your high estimation and you will have begun a transformed life. When you think you have it all, you know it all, you've done it all, you've got it all, whatever, you're not going to have much change in your life. You're locked in. But the minute we learn to humble ourselves, and Scripture tells us to do this, think no more highly of yourself than you ought to think. There's humor in this, by the way. There are many passages that have a lot of humor in them. Let no man think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Say, well, how highly should I think of myself? Let each of you consider every other better than yourself. That's Scripture. How high should I think of myself last? When we start thinking of ourselves last, and when we stop looking at people and judging from the basis of our perceptions and our standards, and start looking at them as what God may do in their life, and start treating them as someone that we treat with respect as a superior to ourselves, guess what? Transformation—not transportation. I almost slipped there. Transformation has really begun in our life. And you know what? It won't happen until then. This man went from the sadist, the arrogant, the superior. Do you know that Paul evaluated his life three times in his epistles? Do you know that every time he evaluated himself, he evaluated himself lower than before? You can see his growth by reading his own self-evaluations. Put him among the apostles, and what does he say? I am the least of the apostles. Do you remember? Oh, the least of the apostles. Wow, that's pretty humble for a guy like Paul. 
And then later he evaluates himself and says, I'm less than the least of all saints. Some growth took place in Paul's mental attitude. Do you remember his last evaluation? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. As humble as he was as an apostle, he went down and he went down and he went down. And you know what? The reason he's so great, he learned humility. He learned to humble himself. To the point that he was able to say in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. You know what the greatest lesson Paul learned from Jesus was? Though he existed eternally in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation and humbled himself, being found in the form of a man. He humbled himself again unto death, even the death of the cross. If our Lord could step down from the throne of heaven and come down and down and down and down, and we think we're not going to stoop below some person that we consider inferior. Let's learn to humble ourselves. Come back with me to Romans chapter 1 because I want you to notice three attitudes here. Here's a good place for us to begin. Verse 14, I am a debtor. Do you feel a sense of debt and obligation to those around you? Who is he a debtor to? I am a debtor to the wise and the unwise. I am a debtor to those who are Greeks, cultured, or barbarians. I want to ask you a theological question. Does grace incur debt? I ask this in theological colleges and the theologians always want to argue with me. You better believe it does. Paul was indebted. Guess what? He's going to hit us again with it in Romans chapter 8. You remember the verse? Therefore we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. We are debtors to the Spirit. You say, well, how can grace incur debt? It's very simple. It's called gratitude. You see, gratitude is not a debt that's imposed on you. Gratitude is a debt that you take on yourself. A debt to show gratitude and thanksgiving to a God whose mercy and grace raised us from our fallen condition and placed us into eternal union with Jesus Christ. So he says, I am a debtor. Now notice, verse 15, I am ready. I am a debtor and I'm ready. I'm ready to preach the gospel. Whether it's to you people in Rome or anywhere else, I'm ready. Give me the opportunity, open for me the door, place someone in front of me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And then you'll notice he says, I am not ashamed, verse 16. Earlier in your notes, and I've kind of jumped over all this, 
Uh, it's actually there on page one, but Romans is so much more than what we generally take it to be. Uh, there are many who look at Romans as just the way of salvation. Uh, they look at the book of Romans as an explanation of the gospel, and it is. But it's so much more than that. We look at the book of Romans as the most systematic of all of Paul's epistles, and that's true. In verses 1 through 3, we have the doctrine of condemnation. In chapter 4 and 5, we have the doctrine of justification. In chapter 6 through 8, we have the doctrine of sanctification. And in uh, chapter 12 through 16, we have the doctrine of transformation. Did I leave anything out? Oh, yeah. I think I left out verse, chapters 9 through 11. That's the ones we like to skip over. Or that's the ones we like to say are parentheses. I labored under that illusion for so long. I hope to show you through our time together that in chapter 1, in chapter three, uh, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, Paul is building up to his grand climax of the argument. 9, 10, and 11. And it's not what you probably think. We'll get to that in time. In the first three chapters, we have a dissertation on the gospel. But you'll notice that where chapter 1 begins and chapter 3 ends, chapter 1 with the content of the gospel, chapter 3 ends with the application of the gospel, and in between there's that kind of uncomfortable part, you know? The wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who, what's the next phrase? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I want to warn you of a danger tonight. Every one of us is in grave peril of suppressing the truth. When God's Word wielded by His Spirit, speaks to our soul and convicts us either of things that we need to lay aside or of things we need to lay hold of and we suppress it. We're in grave peril. Because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth. Now, through the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, he's primarily talking about unsaved people. And he's going to talk about those who fall into idolatry. That's the rest of chapter 1 from verse 18 to verse 32. And there's a reason that he talks about idolatry because it is a central component of his argument in chapter 9 and 10. Get ready for that one. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the danger of philosophy and religion. Those who look down on others, those who judge others. Therefore, you who judge others, condemn yourself because you who judge them do the same things. And so he's going to talk about the philosopher or the religious person by whatever religious persuasion. And then he gets later on at, toward the end of chapter 2 and verse 17, and he starts dealing with the Jew. Behold, you are called a Jew. 
and you consider yourself to be enlightened, and you consider yourself to be uh, a teacher of the foolish, and a guide to the babes, and so on and so forth. But the whole point is, what he's doing, whether with the heathen, whether with the philosopher, the religious person, or whether with the Jew who is enamored with the law of Moses, he's saying, all of you are wrong. And by whatever path you're following, you are suppressing the truth. And in suppressing the truth, you are causing a consequence within your own soul that we call the hardening of the heart and the blinding of the eyes. Does that sound familiar? Seems to me it comes up in Romans chapter 11. It's the inevitable consequence of saying no to the truth, saying no to the light. Every time we say no to the truth and we shut out the light, the eyes of our soul dim. The sensitivity of our heart hardens. And whether we realize it or not, the most sensitive thing in us is our heart and our soul. You know, the heart is to the body what the mind is to the soul. That's why he talks about the renewing of the mind. We are refreshing the heart By the way, can anyone tell me? I can't see a clock. What time is it? 7.30. Is that what you said? All right, man. Was that the Holy Spirit or what? It's time for me to stop. How about if we stop here and take a break and we'll come back together and uh, let's just close out with prayer. Father, please guide and direct us as we look at this marvelous book and we reflect on the man who sat and wrote it, probably dictated it. Uh, But Lord, it was written for us. As we look into it, may God the Holy Spirit give us the sensitivity to be receptive to the truths that You would have us to learn the things that You would convict us of that our lives may truly be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ for we pray in His precious name. Amen.